tres, cuatro. From WBEZ Chicago and PRX, this is Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis, or whatever my name is. And I'm Greg Cott. This week, our guest is rock legend Alice Cooper. He's a pioneer of the shock rock era with his costumes, makeup, and theatrics. And while he's had a five-decade-long career, it wasn't always easy. We had to overcome the visual thing. They all loved the show. But, you know, a lot of the critics said, well, take the show away, and what are they? I think it made us work harder to get people to respect our playing ability. Plus, we'll review new music from Deaf Heaven and Chance the Rapper. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and later in the show, we're going to revisit our 2015 interview with the shock rock inventor and music legend, Alice Cooper. But first, we've got some new music. Today I miss my workout, but it worked out. Now I'm missing work now, but it worked out. Had to buy a crib for up on my first house. Had my first kid, I love how she turned out. I love how she turned up, even if I'm burnt out. I'ma have so many seeds, I could have a birdhouse. I'ma love on a mama, I hope it worked out. I hope it worked out. Luckily, my ex That is a little bit of a track called Workout by Chance the Rapper, Greg, uh, one of the most important voices in Chicago hip-hop, the most important voice since Kanye West. Chancellor Bennett uh, grew up in the West Chatham neighborhood, is now uh, as well-known in town as a philanthropist, giving money to the Chicago public schools, just doing a concert, big one, at Northerly Island uh, to celebrate Special Olympics. Uh, An international superstar since he emerged in 2012, but he hasn't ever sold a record. Mm. which remains fascinating to the both of us. So he tells you in an interview, uh, I have a new album coming, and then he only gives us four tracks. Uh, (laughs) Apparently still working on the rest of the album. We have this four-track EP, and it's fascinating because it's him shooting from the hip about the things that are on his mind right now. Mm -hmm. You know, he spent some time with Kanye West in Wyoming a few weeks ago when Kanye was in his infamous period of dealing with all sorts of crises and putting out very immediate sounding music. And so Kanye, I think, um, set the tone in some ways for Chance in terms of how he wanted to put out his music. This EP sounds very much of the moment, a snapshot of where Chance is now in relationship to his city, his family, and most of all, the people who have ticked him off. You know, we have not seen this side of Chance the Rapper. He's cuddly Chance the Rapper, right? With a few exceptions in his career. You know, No Problem was a track where he, you know, really took on the record industry in no uncertain terms. You know, you guys are going to try to manipulate me. Well, you better watch out. I'm not going to be manipulated. (laughs) 
And in this track, I might need security. Uh, this is this is no problem times ten. You know, over this explicit refrain, which we cannot play for you. Well, the whole um, the whole song's driven by this Jamie Fox uh, delivered incredibly <laughs> catchy hook. We wish we could play it for you, but we can't. You know, he's naming names here. He's calling out uh, politicians. You know, specifically the mayor of Chicago, Rahm Emanuel, who's basically saying it's time to resign, pal, yeah. uh, for what you're doing about violence in this city, giving, quote-unquote, paid vacations to murderers. He's talking about police shootings of young African Americans in Chicago, which has become a nationwide problem, let's face it. Yeah, uh, but it's, in, it's an that. intense period in Chicago with these trials coming up. There's a police officer, Jason Van Dyke, who killed uh, a young black boy, uh, Laquan McDonald, uh, shot him when he was down on the ground. Uh, it is a difficult summer here in Chicago, and Chance is talking about it with his usual poignancy as well as his usual humor. Um, he also has become Citizen Kane, yeah. a media mogul. He announced in this song the news that he has purchased a website called Chicagoist, uh, which was part of the Gothamist network. Mm. They went down as many new media enterprise journalism sites are going down. He's going to now become a publisher. But he's taking issue, Greg, uh, with the Chicago Sun-Times. He's taking issue with a female columnist. He doesn't name her. But Mary Mitchell was my colleague at the Sun-Times for the 15 years I worked there. She's a hero to me like Lester Bangs and Roger Ebert, all right? And she's a woman who criticized uh, the dispute that was very public uh, uh, about his child support. Uh, you know, Chance, you are a superstar now, and people will talk about you in the news. So, you know, in Workout, he is praising uh, black women and mothers and, and lauding them. also taking shots at them elsewhere. You know, Mayor Emanuel and Bruce Rauner, our governor, can take the hits, but mm. I don't know if the media deserves them the way he's dishing them out. Well, you know, it, that's a question that, you know, Chance is, uh, is finally speaking out on in no uncertain terms. You know, some of the lines in the song are, are, you know, will shake you up a bit. When he talks about the bad guys better stay on my good side, well, who exactly are the bad guys here? He's painting some of the members of the media in, in that light. When he talks about buying Chicagoist, this uh, uh, internet publication, uh, to run the racists out of town is what he's saying in, mm. in that particular line. I think, he, I think it's kind of refreshing that he's able to show this side of himself. Not only is there vulnerability here when he's talking about his relationship with his now fiance in 65th and Engleside and how that relationship evolved over the last five years. I can spare a rip to get my baby back. I just want to fussy with my baby, yeah. So I don't wake up wonder where my baby, yeah. I wonder if we make it back. I wonder can I pay it back talking about his relationship, um, you know, to his baby. I mean, these, these kind of things are uh, are the, the vulnerable side of Chance. The other side of him is this public figure who is being scrutinized more closely than ever and who is inserting himself into social and political causes that are going to cause controversy. Um, so he's, he's mixing it up here a little bit in new ways. But again, people are going to focus on I might need security. And in some ways, I keep going back to that silly GQ headline from a few years ago, how Chance the Rapper's life became perfect. You know, and we want everybody to believe that, right? Yeah.
Chance is basically saying, no, I got some issues too, then he's he's very much addressing that. And Chicago's not perfect, yet he still epitomizes this city. Uh, everybody, like you said, is talking about I might need security, but 65th and Ingleside, that's the brilliant one here. That is a track called Honeycomb from the new Deaf Heaven album, Ordinary Corrupt Human Love. Fourth studio album from this uh, California band. Uh, the co-founders of the band, uh, vocalist George Clark and guitarist Kerry McCoy, they met as teenagers in high school in Modesto, uh, California. They moved to San Francisco when they turned 21 and started making music. Uh, 2011 was the debut record, Roads to Judah, but it was the second record in 2013, Sunbather, that really got them noticed, in which they expanded beyond their origins as a so-called black metal band and incorporated all sorts of new textures and sounds into that album. Now we have album number four, which extends the legacy even further. Uh, We have a track from it that kind of indicates some of the new directions that they're moving in called Near. It's from Ordinary Corrupt Human Love by Deaf Heaven on Sound Opinions. That is Near from the new Deaf Heaven album, Ordinary Corrupt Human Love. Greg, uh, the title comes from two sources, Graham Greene, the wonderful British novelist, and Argentinian Mm -hmm. novelist, Julio Cortazar. Both of their works that are being referenced are about the extremes of love and hate and how sometimes those blend, right? You know, I think one of the greatest formulas in all of rock and roll is that mix of sweet and sour. We've seen it done so many times, Mm -hmm. you know, in death metal, in black metal, you know, 
black metal adds lots of keyboards yeah. and classical pretension to the death metal cookie monster growl. Right? Unlistenable. Mm. I love a lot of black metal, and I don't think there's a finer progenitor of it than Deaf Heaven. But to say that they're just that genre limits them. I mean, they're extremely musical. They're extremely ambitious lyrically, uh, musically, uh, and, and they provide that catharsis while also providing a sense of hope. You know, after a tough week like the one I just had, yeah, you can listen to Slayer nonstop, but at some point you may also like run into the middle of traffic. You know, I, I like listening <laughs> to Deaf Heaven a lot better because there's a little bit of a light at the end of that tunnel. Yeah, I'm a big fan of Deaf Heaven. I thought Sunbather was a great record. I do remember writing some positive things about that uh, in 2013 when it came out and just getting inundated with nasty notes from metalheads who were saying, how can you write about this band? They're a bunch of sellouts and posers. This band still gets that sort of shtick. To me, they're doing something right when they're not uh, necessarily playing to a particular genre or wanting to be pigeonholed in any way. Uh, The fact that they are so expansive and so willing to take risks is one of their greatest strengths. Now, that said, I think there are a couple of moments on this record which just leave me kind of feeling like, Ugh, really? Know? I agree with the haters on, on, these, really? per, on these particular tracks. Because I'm loving this whole yeah, thing. Yeah, I'm telling you, the, the Night People goth ballad, uh, I'm sorry, that looks like it belongs on the American Horror Story soundtrack See, or something I, like that. I have a higher it doesn't goth. doesn't do it for me. I got a higher goth tolerance than you. And, and you without end, uh, explain that to me, Jim, because that's the Broadway song that meets that has a guitar solo right out of a Queen or Boston album in the seventies. also has this kind of Enya interlude. Uh, Have you no Enya love? You know, Enya can do Enya. I don't want Deaf Heaven doing Enya. You looked up to watch them form a ghostly chevron. But I will say that there are those four ten-minute tracks on the record, including Honeycomb, a bit of which we just played, are fantastic. I mean, they're at A-plus level Deaf Heaven. Everything that I want to hear in this band, the riffs, the shoegaze elements, the atmospherics, the, the beautiful textures, the haunting textures, the propulsion, the drive, it's all there in those tracks. You know, they're a progressive rock band in many ways because you yeah. get like four or five songs in That's these 10 minute them. epics. Uh, and when they do that, they do that well. And the song we just played, Near, fantastic. I yeah. loved That is a ballad that really works for me. It's very stripped down, very powerful, very wistful. The longing in that song is very palpable, and it does sort of reference that Graham Greene, the end of the affair novel, Mm -hmm. uh, where they talk about many of these characters dealing with these unresolved emotional issues, and you sort of feel that tone set by that song. It's a fine line between clever and stupid, <laughs> really. But this is what Spotify is for, right? Make the playlist of the songs you like on both the right. Chance EP right. and this Deaf Heaven I record. like five on this record, yeah. As always, we want to hear from you. What do you think of the latest from Deaf Heaven or Chance the Rapper? Call and leave a message on our hotline, 888-859-1800, or find us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram.
listening to Sound Opinions, and that's the title track from the 1973 album Billion Dollar Babies by our guest this week, Alice Cooper. Greg, Alice was born Vincent Fernier in Detroit, but he moved to Arizona when he was a teen. In high school in 1964, he was the lead singer in a garage band, The Spiders, Kicking around Phoenix for a couple of years, eventually moved to L.A. The band changed its name to Alice Cooper, and Vince adopted that moniker himself. A couple of albums followed under that name. Pretties for You, 1969. Easy Action, 1970. Not making much of an impact. But in 71, everything clicked when the group started working with producer Bob Ezrin, who's been a guest on this show. Love It to Death spawned the mega hit I'm 18, and a string of super successful albums followed. School's Out, Billion Dollar Babies, and of course, Welcome to My Nightmare. Pretty soon, Alice Cooper was becoming infamous for the theatricality of his stage show. You know, he was inventing a style that would become shock rock. And what he was doing is he was bringing on stage straight jackets, snakes, guillotines. I mean, this guy was doing it up big. Lots of blood, lots of fake violence. It was the most outrageous show in rock for quite a number of years in the early 70s. And we're very excited to talk to Alice Cooper. Alice, it's a pleasure to have you on Sound Opinions. Thank you so much. Thank you. I know that my generation, the Who song, was was a huge influence on you, Alice. I mean, I've, I've read oh, that absolutely. in a few places. When did you first hear that song, and why did it have such an impact on you? Well, you know, we're in high school. All of a sudden, the song comes on the radio, and it was probably the first anthem I'd ever heard. The, the first real anthem. Later on, it sparked 18 and schools out, and I want to be elected, the, the anthems that Alice had, because I loved the idea of speaking to a generation, and the song can go five, six generations apart, and it still works. Every time we do 18 on stage now, everybody in that room yeah. totally gets it. If you do schools out, everybody goes back to their last day of school. Those were real anthem anthems that every kid could get. You know, speaking to the generation, it, it was that it was sort of was a conscious thing going into writing a song like 18, which was really the song that put you guys on the map. It was a conscious thing. I'm going to write this anthem. I'm going to have lyrics that are speaking to my generation. Yeah, it really was. Uh, uh, to be honest with you, it started out, that song was basically a jam, that, you know, three, four chord jam. And Bob Ezrin heard it and he said, what is that thing you're singing? I'm edgy? And I go, no, no, it's, I'm 18. I like the idea of the hook being... I'm a boy, I'm a man, I'm in the middle, I don't know what to do. And it was during the Vietnam War, of course. In other words, I, can, I can't vote, but I can be in the army. And, mm -hmm. and it sounds really kind of complaining and whiny. And then at the end, he said, I'm 18 and I like it. Mm -hmm. the, the idea of I like being 18. I love the idea that I'm confused and I'm sexually insane. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
So, I mean, th there was a, then it was a celebration of being 18 years old and irresponsible. So the story of your band goes back to when you were a teenager. Before Alice Cooper was Alice Cooper, you had formed in Arizona the Spiders in 1964. Tell us about that original incarnation of the band. The weirdest thing about the Alice Cooper band, there were so many ironies about it and so many strange left turns. We were a high school rock band, and it just so happened that three of the guys in the band were art majors, okay? Mm -hmm. It just so happened that three guys in the band we're also four-year lettermen in cross-country and track. <laughs> wow. So we were jocks on top of it. <laughs> yeah. Basically, we ran our school because we were all Ferris Bueller. Yeah. It was, yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. We not only had the jocks wired, we had the rockers wired because we were the number one sort of local band in town. Everything was in place. Yeah, no mm -hmm. wonder you're 18 and you like it because mm -hmm. you're the coolest guy in the world. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we had, I had girls doing homework for me. <laughs> I had band rehearsal. And if I wasn't band rehearsal, I was running 10 miles that night because of the track meet next week. But anyways, there was nobody really wanted to beat us up because we had everybody covered. After a quick break, we'll continue our conversation with Alice Cooper. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. I'm here with Greg Cott, and that's a bit of the song reflected from the debut album Pretties for You by our guest, Alice Cooper. That's 1969. Alice, by the late 60s, your band The Spiders had gone through a couple of name changes. First to the Naz, not to be confused with the Todd Rundgren band, and finally to Alice Cooper. What was it like playing in and around Los Angeles in those early years as Alice Cooper? The strange thing was we came to L.A. like every other band out of high school and trying to get into the whiskey, trying to get into Beto Lido's or any of the clubs. And who are you up against? You're up against the Doors. You're up against Buffalo Springfield. They're already established. Mm -hmm. So all the bands we're up against now are Spirit, who were the best band I think I'd ever heard live next to Paul Butterfield. Mm. And all the other bands that were just trying to make it, we finally got a, a gig at the whiskey where I looked up at the whiskey and it said, Alice Cooper, and I said, and who's Led Zeppelin? <laughs> <laughs> and they, they walked in and I looked at Jimmy Page and I went, hey, he was with the Yardbirds. Yeah. And so I said, we open for you. And he says, okay, well, we'll open for you tomorrow. The next night, the night after that, we played the Cheetah Club and I went, Alice Cooper, and who's Pink Floyd? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sid Barrett, Pink Floyd. Right, wow. Now we fit in with Pink Floyd more than anybody else because we were writing these songs that were like, we had like six two-minute songs with 35 changes in them. 
Yeah, well, I've always read that your guitarist, Glenn Buxton, was usually influenced by Barrett's guitar playing. Glenn could not jam with a blues player, but you give him an echoplex and mm. Sid Barrett, and they would sit there for hours mm. playing back and forth echoplex wow. stuff. Mm -hmm. yeah. Now, it, the strange thing was, was we, we were very influenced by mostly the Yardbirds. That was like our influence. But then when we started writing our own songs, we took them in so many different directions. You'd hear a little bit of I Spy. You'd hear a little bit of Man From U.N.C.L.E. theme. You'd hear a little bit of this going on, because we grew up with that stuff. Mm. We used to do the Patty Duke theme, you know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Frank listened to like seven of the songs and he looked at me and he goes, I don't get it. <laughs> and I went, well, is that good? And he goes, oh, yeah, it's great. So, so this is says, the fact that I don't get it is really important. Yeah. So, so you're yeah. talking about Zappa. You were blowing Zappa's mind. Yeah. Well, yeah, because he said, first of all, he says, your songs don't go anywhere. He says they don't go back to the verse. They don't go back to the chorus. They go to someplace else and then just stop. And I said, yeah. <laughs> and he says, well, okay. He says, now, where are you guys from? He said, are you from, like, New York or... You know, I said, we're from Phoenix. He goes, now I really don't get it. <laughs> he said, why would a cowboy town come up with guys that are playing stuff that, that's even making me go, what? Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, Zappa, the great musical scholar, is studying Edgar Varese to get to the same place you're getting to just out of sheer dumb, like, we don't know better. You know, that was the funny thing. We could write stuff that was like everybody else. But I said, well, why would we go there? Yeah. Dennis Dunaway and I were the two real art majors. And Dennis was the one that would take it off into another realm. And I'd kind of look at him and go, okay, yeah, let's go there. Yeah. Because, why? Because nobody's ever gone there. <laughs> so let's go there. I know a shoe salesman is an acquaintance of I think, Alice, when, uh, you know, people discovered you, they would go back to those first two albums and their minds would be blown, much like Frank Zappa's, like, what is this? This relates not at all to the band I'm hearing in the midst of your multi-million selling heyday in the early 70s. Well, to be, to be honest with you, that's all Bob Ezrin. What happened was the first two albums, Pretties for You and Easy Action, those albums were written when we were the Spiders and the Naz. And so I kind of look at those albums as being Spiders and Naz albums. Mm -hmm. When Bob Ezrin came in, and suddenly he took all of those little ditty parts that were really clever little parts and said, okay, we're going to get rid of 85% of this, but <laughs> these, this 15% is really good. He spent most of his time in the studio going, dumb it down. Yeah. And then when we heard it on the radio, we went, oh, yeah. Yeah. You couldn't get away from it. It was so simple. Well, we had Ezrin on the show, and he's he's a, a great talker and a great storyteller. Oh, he's got but, so many stories, yeah. But you're self-effacing almost to a flaw. You know, simultaneous to the sound being crafted in the studio, really coming together on Love It to Death 71, right? You're also inventing this character and this larger-than-life stage persona. Already in this chat, you've referred several times in the third person to Alice. 
Mm-hmm. And so, I do always. I yeah, always refer yeah. to him. I can step outside of Alice and go, Alice wouldn't wear that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Or, or, or even my kids would watch a video and they'd say, hey, Dad, Alice is on. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Not you're on. Yeah. Yeah. Thinking as the art student, right? What's the genesis of that really coming together? What were the different strands? I mean, because every people have said everything from Salvador Dali to other crazy rockers. You know, uh, we never really followed the rockers. Mm. It was always something outside of rock. So nothing like Screaming Jay Alice. Hawkins, you know, with the yeah, the, and we didn't even know who that was. Oh, I mean, wow. that was out of our radar. Mm-hmm. The the world was full of Peter Pans, and there was no Captain Hook. <laughs> and to me, I went. I will gladly be Captain Hook. It's needed. There's no there's no villain in rock. There's no Moriarty. And then when you start creating this character, I think the two things that influenced it most, the look of it, we saw Barbarella, the movie. Right. The Black Queen. Uh-huh. I went, ah. Oh, so you're whole, not you know, siding that... with Jane Fonda. You're going with the Black oh, Queen. Oh, no, I'm going with the Black Queen, yeah. And she had switchblades coming out of her wrists, and I went, Okay, that's that's Alice, and then the other one, the odd one was Baby Jane. Mm. Whatever happened to Baby oh, yeah. Jane? Mm-hmm. Now, when I'm very good and do as I am told, I'm Mama's little angel, and Papa says I'm good as gold. But when I'm very bad and answer back and sass, then I'm Mama's little devil. And Papa says, I've got the brass. Betty Davis is 70 or 80 years old, trying to look like a 12-year-old. And she's got this makeup that's caked on. And it's all cracking. Mm-hmm. And the lipstick is all crooked. And the eyes are all crooked because it's not on very well. And I went, okay, take the Black Queen and put that makeup on her. And you've got Alice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. I finally created my favorite rock star. He's pretty entertaining. There's no doubt about that. I think Ezra really appreciated that. And you, again, you're kind of self-deprecating about this whole dumb it down thing because at the same time on Love It to Death, you've got a thing like The Ballad of Dwight Fry, which is this really ambitious piece. It's like a mini drama or a play. Everybody talked about Bela Lugosi and Boris Karloff and Lon Chaney, and yeah, well-deserved. The creepiest thing about those movies was Dwight Fry. Mm-hmm. He was Fritz in, in Frankenstein, the little guy with the hunch on his back, yeah. and he was Renfield. Yeah. Well, yeah. nobody was creepier than Renfield. Flies, poor puny things. Who wants to eat flies? You do, you loony. Not when I can get nice fat spiders. And I said, what is that guy's name? That guy that plays both those characters. We found out it was Dwight Fry, and I said, well, he deserves to be immortalized. (laughs) (laughs) To this day, that is still the most theatrical thing we do on stage, and the audience craves it. They love Alice in a straitjacket. Yeah. 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 And an insane nurse behind him, you know. It's an amazing moment in the show. And the other thing I want to point out about Love It to Death, which has so many elements that are way ahead of what was going on in mainstream rock at the time, the attitude, that's the thing I think I remember relating to first. Like, you were punk rock before punk rock. 
caught in a dream. I'm I'm caught in a dream. So what? I mean, that's like yeah. that, that, that's like the, that that's like the whole punk attitude right there. And nobody was singing those kind of words back it, it, then. You know, it was. I was born in Detroit, so there's a certain amount of. I cannot ever imagine going on stage without at least two guitars at full blast. Mm-hmm. I'm a guitar rock guy, it, because I mean, Detroit rock is real industrial real chuck berry type of rock and roll and then you put your twist on it mm-hmm. yeah. you put the alice twist on it being a lyricist that was really where all the twists came from if you say welcome to my nightmare well give them the nightmare don't just say it mm-hmm. yeah i mean if you've got something that rich in theatricality you can't just say welcome to my nightmare you've got to give it to them welcome to my As a result, you guys didn't get a lot of respect, even as you're having these million-seller albums, uh, Schools Out, 72, Billion Dollar Babies, 73. You're not getting yeah, a lot of... Yeah, they were two number ones in a row. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Schools Out and Billion Dollar Babies, yeah. But, but no respect, Alice, from rock critics. Did that hurt at the time when people weren't understanding what you were doing or just saying, well, this is bubblegum, this is kid stuff? To us, it just made us matter and made us more irritable and made us work harder. I think other bands would rehearse two hours a day. We rehearsed nine hours a day. Mm. And eight hours was on the music and one was on the theatrics. So I think it made us work harder to get people to respect our playing ability. We had to overcome the visual thing. They all loved the show, but you know, a lot of the critics said, well, take the show away and what are they? There's that famous quote from Dylan in the mid seventies, Alice Cooper is underrated as a songwriter. Mm -hmm. That was one thing that just absolutely, then we started getting respect. (laughs) Because when Dylan spoke and said Alice is a great lyric writer, all of a sudden we got respect. What did you threaten him with or how much did you pay him? Yeah, I didn't even, I've never met Dylan. And it was one of those things where like I didn't even know he knew we existed. All of a sudden these guys are listening to your albums and McCartney heard our albums. He says, I snuck into the Nightmare Show in 1975. He says, and it was great. I never saw anything like that. When you get those people talking about you, then suddenly everybody has to listen to you. Yeah, I think Dylan, especially talking about you as a great songwriter, because you were saying things that no one else was saying or was allowed to say or felt cowed to say. I mean, we just didn't care. We just said what we were going to say. And if it was clever, that was the important thing, to be clever. Mm -hmm. I, I really did not want to be a blunt instrument. I wanted it to be in your face, but when when you thought about it the second time, you went, oh, that's clever. I love the dead before they're cool. The bluing flesh for me to hold. Cadaver eyes upon me see nothing. But, you know, you think about a song like I Love the Dead, you know, I mean, necrophilia, Alice. I mean, my God. Is there anything funnier than necrophilia? (laughs) Come on. And even Ann Landers, she went off on this necrophilia, how dare you, and this and this. And I wrote her a letter back saying, if necrophilia takes off as some sort of fad, I said, I will take responsibility. Other than that, get a sense of humor. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, right, right. I said, nobody's serious about necrophilia, okay? It, it mm. really is extraordinary how, how 
dense the press was when dealing with you. I, I have always wanted to ask you about Bob Green. Starts out at the Chicago Sometimes, moves to the Chicago Tribune. Greg and I, as Chicago journalists, of course, you deal with Bob Green, right? So he yeah. goes on tour with you in 1973 and writes a book, Billion Dollar Baby. And I had sort of respected some of Green's. I mean, when he would go meet a beach boy or something, it was kind of okay, right? But he did not understand Alice Cooper at no. all, did he, in that when book? We, when we realized he was gullible, mm-hmm. <laughs> that's when we went off. You know, we, when <laughs> I, we would walk into the room and say, okay, Neil, this time you're going to be angry and you're going to throw the ashtray against the wall. Yeah. And, he's gonna, and as soon as he would leave, we'd just laugh because we never fought. You know? yeah. But yeah. he's writing a book on us. we got to make this really look like it's very intense and dramatic and everything. I, I think we made him dress up like Santa Claus at Madison Square Garden, and yeah. we beat him up at the end of the show. <laughs> yeah. You know? right? Yeah, Santa Claus got mugged. I remember that. Yeah, he, he was, Santa Claus gets I said, well, of course Santa Claus should get mugged. Do you want to be Santa Claus? Sure. <laughs> you know, but the but the show that he was kind of ensconced in, to me it was like a play in itself. I mean, you put so much effort into... The, the, the songs were amazing, but I think at the same time, there was more going on than just a bunch of songs being played. You were, you were creating a, a play with a beginning, middle, and end, and I always saw it like as a cautionary tale. Like you were saying, like nobody really thinks necrophilia is a good idea, and if they did, this, would, this is what would happen to them, and the guy <laughs> gets killed at the end, right? I mean, isn't that the whole oh, yeah. idea? Yeah, mm-hmm. the, the fact that it, 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 I can't think of any play, movie, or anything where if the villain doesn't get it in the end, it's not satisfying. You have the mm-hmm. villain yeah. has to get it in the end, and so Alice, of course, is going to get electrocuted, <laughs> or he's going to get he's going to get uh, the gallows, or he's going <laughs> to get his head cut <laughs> off. And it's a satisfying moment at the end of the show because what happens next? He comes back out with a white top hat and tails, and there's bubbles, and there's confetti, and he's born again. There he comes. Uh, Alice is not dead. Way before Jason Voorhees. <laughs> when the guillotine yeah. falls, right, you know, at the end of the show, then you're able then to, to put it all in the road case and go play some golf or go have a nice dinner, and uh, you don't have to be Alice 24-7. Not always. When I was drinking, I and, and when I first started out, you have to remember, I went through this... Who were my big brothers? Jim Morrison, Jimi Hendrix. These were my the guys I hang hanging out. I was the little brother. Yeah. And I'm watching these guys and going, 27 years old, they're dead. You yeah. know, and they had a they lived their image. They tried to live their image. You know, and I, and I thought, well, my image is even more pronounced than theirs. How am I going to survive this? Yeah. And when I got sober, I finally realized there needs to be two Alice's. There needs to be me who can go to a baseball game or go shopping or go to a movie. And then there's him who I get to play at night. Right, right. And when I got sober, I I understood I don't have to carry the snake around. I don't have (laughs) to wear the makeup every place I go. If you want to see Alice, I'll give you 100% Alice. When you come to see the show, trust me. You're going to see more Alice than you ever thought. But if you see me at the baseball game, I'm probably going to be sitting there eating a hot dog and going, go Tigers. Right. You right, know? right, right. So I really did have to separate the two. And, and we talked about this before where I refer to Alice right, as Alice. Right. And, and I can then be very subjective about what Alice does. 
You know, Alice, I think we all appreciate how forthright and honest you are about getting sober and what it meant to your life. But do you ever wish you could go back and sit with some of the friends you lost, you know, Keith Moon or Harry Nilsson, and say to them, get a grip here. It's not romantic to live fast and die young. Yeah, there's that moment when you do become sober and you, you're you so thankful for it. I mean, mine was truly spiritual. It was like a miracle, biblical miracle. I came out of the hospital and I never had a craving. Mm. So people always go, well, you know, you're a cured alcoholic. And I go, no, I'm a healed alcoholic mm. because this went beyond any kind. I have no self-control. I was the classic alcoholic. Now I was using alcohol as medicine. That's when you become an alcoholic. So I went through all that. I got up one morning, threw up blood, went into the hospital. My wife took me into the hospital and where I deserved to be because she says, look, party's over. I get it. It was fun. Over. Let's go. <laughs> a strong mm. woman. When I came out, though, I never had a craving. Mm. And it was one of those things where the doctor said, no, you have to go through AA. You have to have a sponsor. And I said, I will... Get, go to AA and have a sponsor if the first time I get a craving to have alcohol, okay? I'll make that deal with you, okay. 33 years later, I still have net, not had that craving. Yeah. So as far as I'm concerned, even the doctor says, that's a miracle. And I'm going, yeah, it is. So to me, it's a spiritual thing. I think God just took it away from me. We've been talking to Alice Cooper. Alice, it's been a real pleasure having you on the show. Thanks for coming hey, on. Hey, thank you, guys. It's good. Yeah, you guys know your music. Well, you know, well, someday we we're going to have to grow up and get a real job. But basically, <laughs> mentally, please we're don't. still 18 and we like it. Yeah. yeah, please don't. Don't get a job, okay? <laughs> <laughs> that wraps up our 2015 interview with the great Alice Cooper. And now we want to hear from you. Do you have a story or memory about listening to Cooper's music? What do you think qualifies as shock rock today? Call us and leave a message at 888-859-1800. Coming up, we are both heading to the desert island to share two songs we can't live without. They're interconnected, Greg. I'm going to pay tribute to a fantastic artist who recently left us, who very much influenced the artists that you're going to play. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRogatis, and as often as possible on this show, we like to take a trip to the desert island and play a track. We cannot live without Jim. It's a two-for-one this week, uh, you and I are both going to have Desert Island jukebox picks. We'll be a little less lonely That's on the Desert right. Island. That's right. What, what do you got for us? Um, Greg, I want to pay tribute to Glenn Bronca. 
He died on May 13th from throat cancer. We've been uh, meaning to talk about him on the show for some time. Uh, I think he meant more to me because I was just starting to venture across the river into that New York no-wave, nascent noise scene of the very early 80s. Glenn Branca was a big part of that. He had come to Manhattan to do theater, but also because he loved the Ramones and Patti Smith. He got linked into this art world. Uh, and, you know, New York in the early 80s was really exciting uh, because th- there were no lines between what was going to blow up as hip-hop, what was going to blow up as as graffiti art uh, and, and experimental noise, but also pop music and rock and roll and the remnants of punk and all the artists uh, and, and the, the breakdancers and the musicians were all kind of like winding up at the same place. Mm-hmm. And Bronca's idea was, what's better than two guitars in your basic guitar, bass, drums, rock and roll band? Seven, mm-hmm. maybe ten. How about a hundred? Among his early collaborators were uh, Thurston Moore and Lee Ronaldo of Sonic Youth. That's how they met, through Bronca. Um, you know, Bronca debuted in 1981 with a record called The Ascension. Again, that blurring of lines. Um, and, and the pieces there indicate where he's going. That mix of super sophisticated Lamont Young avant classical composition, uh, multi-harmonics and dissonance, combined with a lot of feedback and just noise. You know, how much of it was planned and how much of it was just seven guitars together sound awfully noisy? I've, I was never able to tell, but I'll tell you this. Standing and watching them at the kitchen or CBGB, the Glen Bronca Ensemble, was like top of your head sheared mm. off, brain spilling out on the floor. <laughs> I want to play a track from that first album, Ascension, which is really where it begins. And Bronca kept going. In 2016, after the death of David Bowie, he did a phenomenal tribute piece called uh, The Light, right? He never stopped until his death at age 69. This is where he began. Lesson number two by Glenn Bronca on Sound Opinions. That was lesson number two from the late, great Glenn Branca. Jim, you mentioned that Branca was a huge influence on that New York City downtown scene, the no-wave scene, as it was yeah. known back in the day. Uh, Thurston Moore, Lee Ronaldo of Sonic Youth, also Paige Hamilton, future member of Helmet, mm-hmm. you know, Michael Girard of Swans. Yeah. I mean, these were hugely influential artists. And you, you get those guys in a room and you basically have the New York downtown rock scene, you know? Yeah. Uh, amazing what he did. 
Sonic Youth, as you mentioned, were, were, were sort of uh, children of the Glen Branca revolution. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's the only way to describe it because nobody else was doing uh, music like that at that time. Thurston Moore and Lee Ronaldo in particular, the way they approach their guitars is not so much as a, an instrument uh, based in blues chords or, or anything traditional. Uh, they were basically sound machines, and we can do anything we want with these six strings. We can attack them with screwdrivers or drumsticks yeah. and make these tones. And, you know, the thing that Bronca, I think, really showed me, because I did get to see one of his guitar symphonies in action in New York in the 80s, was that when you would meld one guitar with another, you would get a third tone. Imagine what you'd get when you had, you know, 18 Seven, guitars yeah. playing or whatever, you know? And, and, and Sonic Youth sort of took that into the guitar rock uh, context. This band and the album that they made in 1988 in particular, Daydream Nation, I think were a bridge between No Wave of New York and uh, the Guitar Symphonies of Branca and the acceptable edge of the unacceptable, as, uh, as um, Peter Buck of R.E.M. once described mm-hmm. it. You know, what became known as alternative rock. Uh, they paved the way for, uh, for, for that in the 90s. So the song I'm going to play from uh, what I think is Sonic Youth's finest album, Daydream Nation, a double album, is a track called Silver Rocket, in which you can hear the fact that there is a song there, but at the same time they're using these tunings and these textures and these sound effects with the guitars that are sort of creating this noisy, mayhem-like atmosphere from which this song could emerge. And to me, it was the most exciting thing I was hearing in rock during that period, before I'm about... 1985 through about, or like 1990, I thought Sonic Youth was the best band in the world. Um, and here's an example of what I'm talking about. Silver Rocket from Sonic Youth, Daydream Nation on Sound Opinions. Silver Rocket by Sonic Youth on Sound Opinions from Greg's Desert Island Jukebox, a twofer this week. Uh, Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we are drifting out to sea. We're going to play our favorite songs about the ocean. Perfect for midsummer, Greg. Sound Opinions is produced, as always, by Brendan Banizak. Alex Claiborne, Ayana Contreras, Andrew Gill, and our intern, Hannah Edgar. You know my name. 
on Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800. New messages. Hey, Greg and Jim, this is Kurt in Jacksonville, Florida. Your Desert Island jukebox pick this week absolutely literally brought tears to my eyes. I fell in love with that particular song by the House of Love at the age of 17 uh, when it first came out. I was elated, overjoyed, and felt that I absolutely had to call for the first time ever to your show. hope that there are dozens or hundreds or maybe even thousands of people who listen to your show who fell in love with that song just like I did almost 30 years ago. Thanks. Hi, my name is Lauren and I'm from Atlanta, Georgia. Um, I'm calling about Drake. Uh, I have to be honest, I haven't listened to the album at all. I've been avoiding it like the plague. Part of the reason is because of how long it is. So I don't really know why he did that. Maybe it's just for shock value. It's interesting to me how Drake has blown up because I grew up with you know, his first couple of albums in the transition from high school to college, and they were kind of these weird party albums, in a sense, for me. But also not at all, because they are very emo when you get straight down to it, um, you know, how vulnerable he is, and everybody's going through heartbreak because, you know, they're, they're breaking up with their boyfriend because they're going to different colleges or something like that. Do you love me? Are you riding? Say you never ever leave from beside me. So I feel like that age group really identifies with Drake more so than, you know, anybody else. So I think that's why I have such a disconnect from him now that I am like a grown adult. I think it would be really interesting to see an age breakdown of those streams since the streams are so ridiculously high. Thanks. Bye bye. Hey guys, this is Jason from Waukesha, Wisconsin. Uh, I'm calling about Buried Treasure and the new solo album from uh, Supergrass frontman Gaz Coombs. It's called World's Strongest Man, and uh, it's a sonically dense brick pop album, but it's also nuanced and sometimes psychedelic, and it's full of hooks. tracks on this album and being solo and away from his former bandmates doesn't detract from the quality of the songwriting and that's why I'm recommending it for some summer buried treasure. Thanks guys. My name is Diana from Cambridge Mass and my underground pick is Animal Mother from Cambridge also. They have a song called I Remember that is a bouncy punk rock anthem. Came out in 2016, I believe. And just a bunch of 
rad ladies from Cambridge writing punk music about having fun and partying and listening to music to hang out, be cool. Thanks so much. No more messages. To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.